Please open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5. If you have one of the Bibles we've provided, you can turn to page 180. And Joshua chapter 5 begins at the bottom of that page. We're going to start this morning by reading the whole chapter. So let's read Joshua 5, starting in verse 1. Listen to God's word. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Harloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. This is God's word. The writer of Joshua loves to press the pause button on the action of the story that he's telling. We saw this when we looked at the account of Rahab and the two spies. It looks like chapter one is gearing up for the crossing, and then we have a pause for the story of the spies, and that story picks up, the crossing story picks up in chapter three and four. And we saw last week, even the story of the crossing itself is full of pauses. So right before Joshua is about to tell us about the miracle that the Lord performed, he stops the story to tell us the Jordan was in flood stage. 
And then as the people are crossing, the story stops again to tell us about how they gathered these stones. There are pauses everywhere in Joshua, and today we come to another one of these pauses. We kind of sense the pause by looking at the, the beginning of chapter 5, when we hear that the Amorites and all these kings to the west, all the kings by the sea, they had heard what the Lord had done in drying up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel, and their hearts melted. And we're, we're told this in, in uh, echoing the words what Rahab told to the spies, that the parts of the Canaanites melted. And so we're kind of gearing up, all right, the conquest is beginning, the hearts of these people are melting, Israel should go and strike. But then we get this pause. Instead of hearing an account of an attack, we get, I think, what must be the polar opposite of attack, right? A self-inflicted wounding of the whole nation of Israel. The Lord tells Joshua to circumcise all the Israelites. And then they celebrate the Passover, and then Joshua has this encounter with the commander of the Lord's army. But of course, it's clear that this is not simply a storytelling technique. This wasn't up to the discretion of the writer of Joshua. It's the Lord himself who stops Israel here at Gilgal. He stops the people just as they are newly arrived in the promised land, ready to go to war with the inhabitants of Canaan. And he stops them here because there's something crucial that they need to remember. They need to remember who they are. And specifically, they need to remember who they are in relationship to God. In other words, as they prepare to drive out the Canaanites and to to fight the Canaanite gods, so to speak, Israel needs to know for certain that it is the Lord who saved them and the Lord who made them his own. There's nothing more important for them to know than to know this reality, that God saved them, that they belong to God, and then to live in light of this reality. As we look at these identity markers that the Lord lays out here in chapter 5, we'll see that they're not just relevant for God's people in Canaan and Joshua's day. They're foundational for God's people today, for Christians today. So this morning we're going to look at these four ways that Israel determines its identity. And they're not too different from the ways we determine our own identity. Right? When we talk about our identity, we usually say where we're from. We tell kind of the big stories in our life that have changed us and the people that have changed us as well. So we see this in Israel's story too. So we're going to lay out these four identity markers. First, we are sinners. Second, the Lord's grace is greater than our sin. Third, worship is the right response to God's grace. And fourth, the Holy Lord is among us. So we are sinners. The Lord is greater than our the Lord's grace is greater than our sin. Worship is the right response to God's grace, and the Holy Lord is among us. So let's start with this first one. We are sinners. The command we see in Joshua verse uh, chapter 5 verse 2 is really jarring. Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Just that phrase, circumcise Israel a second time, is jarring because it's impossible to do, right? Circumcision is a one-time thing. And we have to read down through verse 6 to understand that this entire generation of Israelites born along the way was uncircumcised. Now that's an even bigger surprise than the idea of repeat circumcision. 
Circumcision was the practice that the Lord ordained for Abraham and his offspring. And we first hear it mentioned in Genesis chapter 17. So it might be helpful to turn back there for a second to see what the Lord says to Abraham. Circumcision we see there is a sign of God's covenant with Abraham. So remember this covenant God made with Abraham was a was a special kind of covenant. It's a covenant that begins really when he calls Abraham out of Ur in Genesis chapter 12. And then it's, a, it's confirmed further in Genesis chapter 15 in that story where Abraham falls asleep after cutting these animals in two pieces and the Lord himself walks between these animals. It was a covenant that was unlike the Mosaic covenant in that in this covenant, the Lord makes the promises and the Lord seems to say, let the curses of this covenant fall on me. If this covenant is broken, let it fall on me. The thing that Abraham had to do to get into this covenant was to be Abraham. That's pretty much it. And yet in Genesis chapter 17, well after the covenant had been made, after Abraham's great sin with Hagar, God does command circumcision as a sign of the covenant. I think a sign of Abraham's repentance. So let's read Genesis 17, 7 through 14 to get a flavor of this sign. The Lord says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you you shall, shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You can summarize the covenant blessings that the Lord promises to Abraham under three headings, land, seed, and blessing. One, one scholar summarizes them as God's people in God's place under God's rule, receiving God's blessings. And we see all three of them here in this brief passage. But we also see that the land itself is emphasized in Genesis 17:8, And just a couple of verse later in verse 10, the Lord defines this covenant in terms of circumcision. So Abraham's going to, to demonstrate his faith in the Lord's promises by circumcising the males of his household. And this is not something just for him and his kids, but it's something they're supposed to pass down to all the, all the males born in Israel. Then verse 14 defines breaking the covenant in terms of failing to circumcise. So any uncircumcised male is cut off from Abraham's people. So if, if an Israelite wanted to be really mean to their kid, they would not circumcise them, right? An uncircumcised Israelite is cut off from the blessings of the Lord's covenant. 
And so it's really surprising to find in Joshua that the Israelites had not been circumcising their children as they wandered through the wilderness these 40 years. It's really kind of a bombshell. It's surprising God's people have entered the land, this land promised to Abraham so long ago, and yet when it comes to the main covenant sign God had given Abraham, they're almost all covenant breakers, categorically. They don't have the sign of a covenant keeper. And yet, surprisingly, we get no commentary in Joshua 5. Joshua 5 doesn't say, you know, you idiots should have stopped along the way and done this. We don't get any of that. We don't get, we don't get commentary on why that previous generation failed to do it. What we do get is something about that past generation's disobedience, though, right? We're told that they perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. So instead of failure to circumcise, what he wants us to see is their rebellion against the voice of the Lord. That's what he draws our attention to. And when he he uses that phrase, he's drawing our attention back to Numbers chapters 13 and 14. right? In Numbers 14, Israel rebelled against the Lord and Moses because of the report of the spies about the land of Canaan. So this is all very significant that this this, uh, is happening in regard to the entering the land and this first sin that he's drawing our attention to happened in regard to them failing to enter the land. So those spies said to the people of Israel, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. This terrified all the people of Israel. And that brings us to their response to the spies in chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. They say, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. We can all understand being afraid, but what we see here is a complete rejection of the Lord's promises and the Lord's authority. The Lord had promised the land. He commanded them to take the land, but they reject those things. They don't trust that God is going to do what he said he would do. They even reject the mediator God had provided for them, who'd been so faithful to them. They, They want to reject Moses and find another leader who will do what they want, who will take them back to Egypt. So they were explicitly choosing the ways of Egypt over the ways of the Lord their God, the God of Abraham. We'd rather be Egyptians than Israelites right now is what they're saying. Joshua makes it clear that this generation who rebelled, they had been circumcised. Right? They had the outward sign of conformity to Abraham's covenant, but they did not obey the voice of the Lord. That's Joshua repeating numbers, saying this is, what, this is the headline of God's Exodus people, the people who came out of Egypt. He says that multiple times. They came out of Egypt. They came out of Egypt. They did not obey the voice of the Lord. And again, their disobedience is in specific regard to their failing to take the land that the Lord had promised them. Other scriptures might put it this way. They were circumcised in their flesh, but not in their hearts. They had the outward sign, but inwardly they were rebellious. And so as a result of their disobedience and their unbelief in the Lord's promises, the Lord sentences them to wander for 40 years in the wilderness until the whole generation died out. And again, this is, this is kind of a, a moderated sentence, right? Because initially there was 
more stern judgment coming, but Moses intercedes for them that they would be pardoned for their sin, and the Lord pardons them. But he says, as a consequence of their sin, they won't receive the land. We see in this, Joshua describes this at the, the second half of verse 6. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So instead of receiving the, the gift that the Lord had sworn to them, now they receive another kind of oath from the Lord, an oath of judgment. They will face the consequences of their sin. They are not going to be able to taste the fruits of this land flowing with milk and honey. We could say that instead of following in the steps of the patriarchs, they followed Esau's path. Right? They sold their birthright. They gave up on the inheritance that God had promised them. They tried as hard as they could to bail on the covenant that God had made with their ancestors. And the only reason they remained God's people is because Moses interceded for them that God would forgive their sin. And the Lord says, I forgive their sin. He pardons them. So let's come back to Joshua now. This generation is freshly arrived in the land of Canaan, and they find themselves in this remarkable place. Here in the long-awaited land, receiving, tasting the blessings of the covenant with Abraham, and yet uncircumcised. And here they're reminded of their parents and their parents' disobedience, how their parents did not obey the voice of the Lord. They are the children of rebels. Where did you come from? My parents flaked out in the wilderness. They would have turned tail and run to Egypt. That's, who, that's the stock I come from. That's my heritage, right? That's, that's what they all have to admit. And they, they bear the marks in their body. They are uncircumcised. But again, the, the Lord heaps no scorn on them. He doesn't rebuke them even. He just says, essentially fix it. Circumcise these children of Israel. But the picture it provides is powerful. Right? They're not in the land because of their virtue. Right? They're not in the land because of where they came from or the, the good stock that was passed down to them. They haven't earned their way in. If anything, again, their heritage is rebellious. They should be outside the covenant of the Lord. They should have no place among the Lord or his people. In this sense, I think we get a, a clearer sense of Israel's sin and God's grace than we do even in the Exodus. In the Exodus, it's implied that Israel needs the blood of the lamb. But here, it's just clear. They're, they're lawbreakers. They're categorically outside. So we can even adapt the words that Paul uses for Gentiles in Ephesians 2 to describe them. They should have been considered alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That's what should have been true of the Israelites here in Joshua chapter 5. It's like they've arrived at this exclusive party and they didn't bring the invitation that they needed for admission. So the Lord's command to Joshua to circumcise Israel is an implied statement of their unworthiness. That's where Israel's life in Canaan begins. And it, that's where all of our lives with God begin. Right, those words of Paul were not originally written to Jews, but to Gentiles, people like us. And Paul was saying something that's universally true about people. In our natural state, we are all separated from Christ, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That's true of all of us. 
Again, to quote Paul, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. He says that we live to carry out the desires of our bodies and our minds. And we too have a long line of sinful ancestors, right? Going all the way back to the first man and first woman. We are by nature children of wrath, Paul says. See, the gospel has a logic to it. And the first premise is that we are all sinners and rebels against God. Just like Israel's uncircumcision, our rebellion comes with a kind of covenantal status. Because of our sin, we find ourselves outside the Lord's blessings. Again, remember Paul's language here, separated, alienated. We are far away. We are enemies of God. That's where we all stand on our own without Christ. Now, it's tempting to fight against these descriptors, right? To want to kind of soften them. I think that's one of the big temptations of the human condition, even for Christians. We'd like to kind of challenge and maybe subtly redefine God's definitions of sin and rebellion. And our culture is all too happy to help us in doing that, right? Our culture would tell us that a person's gender identity or sexual orientation can't be sinful. They're just expressions of who they really are. And even if the culture is not explicitly preaching those things, they're showing us compelling TV and movie characters who normalize those things in our minds. But that's just not something we're, that's kind of done to us from the outside. We do it ourselves, right? It may be as simple as we don't want to have to think of our friends as sinners against God. We don't want to have to challenge the way we see the world. And we see the world as that, that person's pretty good. They, they've been kind to me. We don't want to make that judgment. Or maybe we don't want to confront our friends with the truth that the Lord says we're all sinners, including them. We don't want our faith to make us look weird. But without this basic premise of the gospel that we are sinners, there's no gospel. There's no hope for us. There can be no news, no good news until we come to grip with this bad news. So the Lord's first word to his people in Canaan is, you're uncircumcised. You're outside the covenant. You're sinners. We have to deal with that basic truth. That's where the logic of the gospel begins, with that clear statement of human sinfulness. But by the mercy of God, it doesn't end there. And here in Joshua, we have this long explanatory note about Israel that begins in verse 4, but goes through verse 7. We've already looked at part of it which explained the difference between these two generations, the Exodus generation and the generation born on the way. But now look at verse 7. It says, So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Scripture is amazing. It just the Old, Old Testament stories, they, they hammer things into our brain, right? How many times did I just read the word circumcised there? It would be great to preach this whole sermon and avoid that word, but you can't avoid the word, right? But it also tells us that it was their children whom he raised up in their place, right? The Lord raised up a new generation to take the place of those who died in the wilderness. And this shows us that the Lord's grace is greater than Israel's sin. The Lord could have righteously reduced Israel to nothing, but maybe Joshua and Caleb and Moses at that moment. But he pardoned them. He allowed them to live their natural lives in the wilderness. 
and he makes a promise that their little ones will receive the land. Now, do you remember one of their excuses for wanting to go back to Egypt? They said, our little ones are going to be in prey items here in the land. But listen to Numbers 14.31 when God is talking to his people. But your little ones, who you said would become prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. Look how faithful the Lord is. He extends his promise to the children of those who rebelled. Israel doubts, and they denigrate the Lord. They say, the Lord has brought us out here to kill our kids. But the Lord shows himself faithful and gracious. In Joshua chapter 5, we get to see how the Lord keeps that promise. He's brought them into the land. And here in chapter 5, he commands Joshua to circumcise them. It's an act of his faithfulness and grace that he does this. He doesn't criticize or berate them. He simply tells them what to do. He grants them the grace of this sign of Abraham. The Lord's grace is greater than Israel's sin. They had seen the wonders of his love as he miraculously saved them from Egypt. God says, you've seen my glory. But they rejected him. But the Lord does not reject his people. He forgives their sin and he allows the promises to pass on to their kids. He makes every provision along the way for these uncircumcised rebels, right? He continues to provide the manna. He's still with them in the tabernacle. He fights for them as they fight the kings on the other side of the Jordan. And now he invites them to take upon them this this mark of Father Abraham, this hero of the faith. They get to rectify their covenant-breaking status. The Lord raised up these children out of the graves of the rebellious generation. Our sin is great, but the Lord's grace is greater. The Lord's grace is greater in its power. We know our sin is destructive and ugly, But the Lord brings life out of death. The Bible is littered with examples of these life out of death, um, salvations of the Lord. So the story of Joseph, his, his brother's ugly sin is not the end of him because God meant it for good, right? He brings him up out of the pit. Have you ever come to a point where you thought you were in the pit? Where you thought you'd ruined your life? Maybe you look around and all you see is your own failures. You see a chain of bad decisions in your past, maybe broken relationships, and you see no way of making things better. But have you considered the power of the Lord's grace? That he's the one who raises the dead. This isn't a guarantee that all these problems you're facing are going to go away. Just as in the example of the wilderness generation, you may face the consequences of your sin. But the power of the Lord's grace means that there is still hope for you. There is hope for you now that you can still walk in faith and love today. And there is hope for you in the future. So we can't rewind the clock and undo everything bad we've done. But we can still grow in trusting the Lord, in loving our neighbors, and loving our enemies. And there's hope for our eternal future. Those who came out of Egypt had to live with the consequences of their their sin, but they also had this promise from the Lord that their little ones would receive the promise. The promise of the Lord had not failed despite the rebellion of God's people. And that's true. The Lord's promise is true for us today, even more true. 
For those who trust in Christ, though we die, yet we live. By God's power, he will bring us into his presence. That may be through the waters of death, or it may be when he comes and appears in the sky. The power of God's grace is greater than your sin. He's raised you from spiritual death. Because of the power of the Lord's grace, you always have reason for hope. We can also see the Lord's power on display in how he turns rebels into children. We see a form of this in Israel's story, right? He raises up these children, this new generation, out of the, out of the ashes of the old. He grants them the sign of circumcision. Their parents had broken the covenant, but now these children are grafted back in. It's interesting to see the order here. Just like in Abraham's life, they receive the promise before the sign. They receive the promise of the land, and then when they enter the land, they receive the sign. The Lord says to Joshua in verse 9, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. This is one of the most puzzling uh, little verses in the text, which is why I named the sermon after it. That's always a good idea. No, no one quite knows what the reproach of Egypt is. Calvin says the reproach of Egypt is that um, they were charged as rebels against the legitimate authority of Pharaoh. I don't know where he got that. It seems crazy to me. Uh, commentator David Firth simply says, it covers Israel's enslavement in Egypt and all that went with it. That's his, that's his one-line explanation. Another commentator has more to say, David Howard. He says, this was the reproach heaped upon Israel by Egypt, occasioned by the Egyptians observing that Israel was wandering aimlessly in the wilderness for 40 years, concluding that God had abandoned Israel and heaping scorn on Israel because of this. That seems more plausible to me. I don't know if any of these are finally convincing, but I think that last one is closest to the mark. My guess, though, is that the reproach of, Israel ha uh, the reproach of Egypt has something to do with the desire they expressed back in Numbers to go back to Egypt. Right? And so with the circumcision of, of the, the new generation in the promised land, this 40-year ordeal has finally come to an end. The reproach of Egypt is rolled away. The Hebrew word for rolled sounds like Gilgal. And so that's why this place is named Gilgal. We see that the Lord has raised up himself a people. And they are in his promised land. And they are once again in right relationship to him. This is the Lord's grace. It removes the reproach and stain of our sin. When we take the eternal perspective, this will be true of every child of God. In glory, we will stand in the shining righteousness of Christ. There will be no trace of the disgrace of our sinful desires. Not a whiff. Have you ever had a piece of laundry that was so gross that when you got it out of the wash, it still smelled a little bad, right? But nothing like that. Completely clean. No trace. Brothers and sisters, we should not lose hope. The Lord will remove your reproach. He rolls it away. Paul's argument in Ephesians shows us that the Lord is still raising up children for himself. Those who were once far off are brought near by the blood of Christ. Those who were once dead in sin have been made alive in Christ. Children of wrath become children of God's love. Because of the power of God's grace, no one is beyond the Lord's reach. If you're alive, you can be saved. The scriptures are full of great examples of huge sinners 
who were forgiven by God. This room is full of examples of huge sinners who were forgiven by God because Jesus paid for our sins. And this is all by the mercy of God. So as we read this passage this morning, I doubt many of your first impressions were that this is a gospel invitation, but it is. The call to circumcise in Joshua 5 was a result of God's great mercy. It was the result of God's great patience over decades. And this morning, the merciful and patient Lord is calling you, repent of your sins and receive the great grace of the Lord, the grace that is greater than our sins. The Lord's grace takes center stage in Joshua, but we shouldn't overlook the obedience of Joshua and the people. This is one place where Calvin was helpful to me. He notes how this command of the Lord to circumcise Israel on this side of the Jordan exposed them to great danger. Right? They're, they're not far from Jericho. It would have been much easier for Israel to have done this like a week ago, right? when they were 10 miles on the other side of the Jordan. There was this flooded river between them and the enemies in Canaan. But now, you know, the, the Canaanites know that they're there. The spies are there, the Jerichoites. So maybe they can see them out on the plains of the Jordan. But Israel is commanded to circumcise, and they do, which incapacitates them for a few days. There's no mention of grumbling or questioning. They just obey the Lord. We also see in our passage that the people obeyed God by keeping the Passover. This meal was this great symbol, right, that the Lord had provided in, in Egypt, of how the Lord is going to redeem the firstborn of Israel by the spotless blood of the Lamb. It was a testimony to the whole people of the way that God had saved Israel from death, that he had purchased them for himself. So we only have record, though, to this point in Scripture of Israel keeping the Passover twice. The first one that they kept in Egypt, and then after the tabernacle is built in Numbers 9. So we're not sure if they kept the Passover at all during their wilderness wanderings. Maybe they couldn't keep it because all their children were uncircumcised. I don't know. We're not, we're not told about it, but all we know is that here they do. They keep the Passover and they keep it in obedience to the Lord. So again, we're talking about, in general, this whole sermon is these identity markers. Who are we? Well, we're great sinners. We've received God's great grace. But we also see that we are to be those who worship the Lord. The right response to God's grace is worship. These Israelites are the children of rebels. They exist purely as a sign of God's grace. And yet they obey the Lord here in Joshua chapter 5. They are worshiping people. This goes hand in hand with their experience of God's grace. The right worship of God is central to their identity. And it's to remain central as they go through the promised land. If they drift away from the right worship of the Lord, which includes keeping all his commandments then they're going to lose their identity as God's blood-bought people. And you see a very dramatic example of this with the sin of, of Achan in Jericho. After the sin of Achan, they try to attack Ai without consulting the Lord, and they're driven away, and it says the hearts of Israel melts, just like the hearts of the Canaanites had melted. Israelites become for a second as if they were Canaanites because of their sin against God, because they failed to worship him rightly. We don't, I don't intend to go deep on this point, but I want to leave you with a few questions. What does your worship reveal about your understanding of the Lord's grace? By worship, I don't simply mean what you, we're doing here right now, or especially not just in the singing time of our service. I mean our whole life. 
a great uh, just definition of worship, if you want it, is to look at your bulletin on page four, the, the uh, confession of faith we read. Grant us also that we may direct our whole life, our thoughts, words, and actions, that your name is not blasphemy because of us, but always honored and praised. That's worship. Our whole life, thoughts, words, and actions, honoring the Lord's name, not blaspheming his name. So what does your whole life represent? We could quote the words of Paul, who said that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, as our acceptable act of worship. Does that describe you? pick up some other commands from the New Testament in, in Romans 12. Are you outdoing one another in showing honor? Are you contributing to the needs of the church? Are you showing hospitality? Are you rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep? Or think of the passage we read earlier in 1 John chapter 3. Are you loving your brother? That's what worship looks like for Christ's blood-bought people. The story of Israel's conquest is a story of the Lord's grace and Israel's worship. The story of our lives is the Lord's grace and our worship. The right response to the Lord's grace is worship. And in our worship, we experience more of the Lord's grace. We see that in our passage true, right? As, as Israel circumcised, was circumcised, they experienced this great wonder of having their reproach rolled away. As they ate the Passover, they found that manna ended and God provided this permanent sustenance from the fruit of the land. So as we worship in response to the Lord's grace, we experience more of the Lord's grace. Worship is the right response to the Lord's grace. As this passage move on, moves on, it gets stranger and stranger. In the final scene, somewhere near Jericho, we find Joshua encountering a man who says, I am the commander of the Lord's army, or the army of the Lord. By the end of this passage, it's clear that this being represents the Lord himself because of the final words he says, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Those are an echo of the words that are spoken from the burning bush to Moses, right? These are the words of God himself. Joshua is having an encounter in some way with, with God. Some theologians believe it's a, a pre-incarnate Christ. I don't know. But it's clearly the Lord himself. But it's only clear really in hindsight though, right? Imagine yourself, Joshua. You're, maybe he's spying out Jericho for himself, you know, looking at the walls. And there appears before him a man holding a sword. So he has to ask this question, are you for us or for our adversaries? That's just a natural thing you do, right? I'm in enemy territory. Which side are you on? The commander answers, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Now there's clearly something happening here and getting us ready for the Lord leading his people to take Jericho. So this goes with what follows. But it does seem that a lot is riding on this first no. Why wouldn't the commander of the army of the Lord be for Israel? This whole thing kind of leaves us feeling uncertain. Maybe like there's some danger. Not that we should be uncertain of the Lord's grace or that the Lord is good. He is very good, very gracious. We've seen that, right, in his treatment of Israel. But the question is, how will we live in the presence of the Holy One. We're thinking about these identity markers of Israel. 
one of the, the greatest identity marker is that God, the Holy One, dwells among his people. And this is both their greatest asset, if you can call it that, and it's also their greatest danger. The Lord was with them. How would they follow him? Joshua 5 comes down to this point. The Holy One is still doing wonders among Israel, right? They've seen his glory as they've passed through the Jordan. They've eaten the fruit of the land. The Holy Lord is near in blessing them. What will Israel do? Will they bow down and say, like Joshua, what does my servant, what does my Lord say to his servant? Or will they finally rebel? This identity marker that the Lord is among his people is a danger to them when they rebel, right? That's what we see over and over again. When the Lord's people rebelled, God breaks out in judgment. And so when the commander here answers no to Joshua's question, it's a way of turning the issue back on his people. Will Israel be on the Lord's side or will they try to figure out some form of going back to Egypt? Will Israel be on the Lord's side or will they try to manipulate God into getting what they want? Will they serve the Lord or will they serve the false gods of Canaan? The Holy Lord is among them now. How will they respond? Will they go forth and obey him as they fight in Jericho? Or will they turn tail and run back away? This question is before us too. Today we've been presented with our sin and the great grace of our God. The Holy One of Israel has come near to us in Christ. He's come showing the way that sinners can have the reproach of sin rolled away from us. He's come showing the way that sinners can draw near to God. The Holy One has come with grace and forgiveness. So how will you respond to him? If you claim to follow him, how are you living now? Are you living as one who dwells in the presence of the Holy One of Israel? We know that Christ came with humility. He died to save. He came to serve. But we also confess that he will come again to judge the earth. And these two identities of Jesus are not in conflict. He is Savior and Lord. His holiness is revealed in his gracious salvation and in his righteous judgment. It's clear from Jesus' own words that those who reject him will face him in judgment. He pronounces woe on those who reject the kingdom. The Holy Lord is righteous and merciful. He's come near to save and he is also far above us as the creator of heaven and earth. He's the transcendent one and the God who took on flesh to dwell with us. He's the author of life and the one who suffered death for our sake. All of these things show forth the holiness of our Savior. Even now, as we encounter God's word, God says we are seeing the face of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. The Holy One of Israel stands before you. Or perhaps you want to ask him, well, Lord, are you on my side or not? If we mean by that, Lord, are you going to help me achieve my goals? Well, the answer is clearly no. 
the Lord is not your useful servant, right? The best, the best way to answer that question is to look upon the Lord. Look at his nail-scarred hands. Consider his body, which was broken for sinners, and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And look at him as he is exalted, sitting at God's right hand, reigning over all things, the one who will come again to judge the living and the dead. Look upon Jesus and the majesty of his holy love and righteousness. This passage that proclaims to us God's great grace to sinners leaves us with this question. How will we live in the presence of the Holy Lord? Let's pray. Our Father, this passage is strange to us in many ways. In this ending, perhaps even more strange. Yet we pray for your help to sit with it, to gaze at the Holy One, high and lifted up, the one who was crucified for our sins and who rose again victoriously over sin and death. We pray for your help to live in light of your grace and to respond in worship. In Christ's name we pray, amen.